0: This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz.
1: And I'm Alex Zintner. In this episode, we're returning to the film industry to take on questions of how we should understand the prevalent discussions these days on a couple of major stories. And one of them, this is the one we're going to start with, is we're going to take a look at the performance of the summer box office and how it relates to really would have been, like, a big series of stories over the past few weeks about the, quote, demise of the film industry.
0: Right, and, you know, just like the kids are back to school and the leaves are starting to turn, I think it's important to acknowledge that this has become a perennial cycle. We see this story pretty much at the end of every summer, whether the box office is up a little, down a little, down a lot. Uh, This is something that every year the journalists turned to this question of what was the summer box office as some kind of indicator about the overall health of the film industry. And one of the things we wanted to do is just look at what should we be looking at in order to understand the health of the film industries? Because I think that's another piece of this, is taking apart that these pieces of evidence mean different things to different sectors. And I think for rough purposes, we're going to divide the studios and sort of the production side, which for studio films is also distribution, uh, into one camp, um, and then exhibitors into another camp. But even that's a pretty rough division because we also want to keep in mind that the story for the multiplexes is pretty regularly different than the story for the art or community theaters, just as the story for the big blockbusters may be entirely different than the story for films with lower budgets.
1: Well, comparing quote-unquote art house movies to blockbusters is like comparing apples and oranges.
0: Right, in terms of overall box office numbers, but we could look at something like to the degree to which they are making their money back.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So let's start by actually looking at some of these numbers that the stories are basing themselves on. Uh, What they're saying is doom and gloom, I would actually say, is kind of mixed results for uh, the big st- major studios as a whole, because we did have a few really big franchise hits in Wonder Woman, which made about $400 million domestic. Guardians of the Galaxy 2 did very well. Spider-Man Homecoming, Despicable Me 3 brought in the family audience. And Girls' Night? Girls' Trip, I and was Girls actually going to yep. put them in a separate okay. category of um, a couple, a few really, really big original hits that really stuck out and did well. I'm talking here about Dunkirk, Christopher Nolan's war movie, Baby Driver, Edgar Wright's uh, thief heist movie that made more money than any Edgar Wright movie before that, Gr- and Girls Trip, which also did very well at the box office. And I also want to put in a little shout out for the Big Sick here in the art house sector.
0: And so then the story isn't so good for what we might want to consider some middling middling level sequels. The number for the new Planet of the Apes movie wasn't great. Cars Three, I mean, as they were
1: okay, right? They're not really making their money back as of
0: now. Right, and, and of course, and we're going to talk in just a second about how domestic box office is but a bit of it, I guess as the uh, sequel number gets higher, it sort of seems the results get worse, right? <laughs> so if Pirates of the Caribbean 5, Transformers 5. Those
1: both especially made a lot of their money in the foreign market, and domestically they really did not do well at all.
0: And so when you wrap that all up together, uh, what's being reported is that we're looking at $3.8 billion in domestic box office ticket sales.
1: 14% lower this year than last.
0: So there are, as you might guess, many different reasons to explain this kind of weakness. And so what are some of the reasons that we're seeing, Alex? Well, the first
1: thing that's being blamed is that we have down here is quote blaming the films themselves
0: well they're they're an easy target there was this recent news I, I just had to laugh at uh, yesterday, right, out of Amazon, whereas uh, Jeff Bezos has has basically said we're only going to make television shows like Game of Thrones <laughs> okay. from Amazon. Okay, I on. think
1: that's a completely other conversation. Well, with... it's not,
0: right? You know, okay. so if if Hollywood just would just make better films, then the box office wouldn't go down, right? So that's you know sort of one easy place to lay some blame, but it's it's one of those. It's hard to say whether these films were categorically 14% worse than last year um, or how you're going to make them 14% better. (laughs) So let's just Mm. acknowledge that that's floating around out there, that it is one of those characteristics of the media industry that content is unpredictable, nobody knows, and all that. And so this is a space that there's just not a lot we can do with. We can't Mm. necessarily take this as any kind of evidence that we should make More bigger blockbusters, or we should make fewer smaller blockbusters, or anything like that. So the content kind of is what the content is.
1: I mean, you could look to some of the movies that did well and try to steal what worked for them, like Wonder Woman. It it had great action throughout. It had a very kind of it had a sense of fun to it. It had a sense of enjoyability. It had a sense of humor about itself. Spider-Man: Homecoming and Guardians Two both did as well. You know, these are three superhero movies that brought in an audience because they were different from other superhero movies that came before that.
0: Content isn't quite off the hook in the in the second target of blame either. Uh, There's a really interesting article in the New York Times this week by Brooke Barnes about Rotten Tomatoes. And Rotten Tomatoes uh, is the target of the studio's blame in many cases. And the studio's sort of suggesting that the Rotten Tomatoes uh, criticism aggregation site is to blame. Uh, Alex, can you first explain what Rotten Tomatoes is?
1: Sure. So Rotten Tomatoes is a website that aggregates critics' reviews. And what it does is it takes a review from critics, usually on major platforms, I think you have to have about a million regular readers in order to even qualify to be a Rotten Tomatoes site.
0: And you, and then I think the critics also have to have published a certain number of um,
1: pieces of criticism, right, reviews, in
0: order to then become uh, eligible to be counted.
1: Mm-hmm. And so what Rotten Tomatoes does is it takes a review and it assigns either a fresh or rotten rating to it only occasionally in collaboration with the actual critic themselves. If there's a grade, they have a very set structure for what they deem fresh or rotten, or if there's no grade, they kind of read the review and then assign a thing to it. And very rarely do they actually go back to the critic and say like, oh, we're not sure if this is fresh or rotten.
0: Right. And so just like that class that you took that you really don't want to think back about, you get assigned a score between 1 and 100, 100 mm-hmm. being good. And so the sense is that the, the critic or the, the studios are concerned that the practice which emerged this year of Fandango, a site for buying movie tickets, the prominent site for buying movie tickets. Uh, was displaying Rotten Tomatoes scores in some cases, like before uh, films have been out, um, right there. As next. soon as they have
1: reviews, they're displayed.
0: Right. The question of are people not going to see movies that didn't get good scores um, to blame, for the decrease in the box office. And, and, and well, one could say that perhaps, but I think really the interesting story here is to think about the ways in which a Rotten, Rotten Tomatoes is different from film criticism of the past. I mean... Mm-hmm. We can't blame film criticism all of a sudden uh, for having an effect because film
1: criticism has been around for as long as there's been film.
0: Exactly, and and one of the criticisms of uh, the film industry, according to Barnes' article, is that uh, they feel like uh, the the score is encompassing too many voices, too many different critics, which I, I really find uh, ironic um, because historically the the complaint from Studios about critics is that they are too high minded or elitist. And so.
1: So those New York Times critics are not in touch with the. Exactly.
0: You've got exactly the argument. And so, you know, I think though you could probably piece together something that. Well, what Rotten Tomatoes, because of its breadth, has become is something that does resonate um, and has been meaningful to a wide range of audiences, and therefore, you know, when they found out that that criticism is helpful, um, they have started to use that number. So. Oh, yeah. So there's a reason to think of that. And And
1: even if Rotten Tomatoes itself is kind of a, you you can't just look at the percentage to determine whether a movie is good. There's actually another number that I don't think as many people tend to look at. Mm -hmm. So there's an average rating. Okay. And you Uh, can have movies that have a 98% and maybe a 6 average rating or mm -hmm. 7 average rating or an 8 or 9 average rating. And those tend to be very different classes of movies. Mm -hmm.
0: I can certainly understand how the studios would be feeling like they're losing control of critics in a way. Uh, In the past... The studios have held large junkets and invited critics to come. And before a film opens, they show them the film. They often make uh, talent available. Um, But those venues are highly controlled. And it's very well known the questions that critics are and are not allowed to ask. And sort of the expectation is that the questions are always softballs. And if a critic asks something a little tougher, the critic will find themselves not invited in the future. And so, again, we have an old practice of criticism that was really less effective. Um, And so, again, you might be seeing Rotten Tomatoes sort of accounting for that. And so the junkets become less helpful in an environment when... the, the stories that are being written about a new movie are not entirely based on um, a number of journalists who've experienced the junket and therefore mm-hmm. gotten uh, a very strong uh, this is the party line from the studio. And gotten
1: to actually talk to the talent involved. Mm-hmm. Now, although something interesting that kind of pulls off that point from the Barnes article is he talked about how studios are now trying to game Rotten Tomatoes by actually giving certain critics that they know will give a positive review or they think will give a positive review earlier access to the movie to kind of drive that score up higher and then they kind of let the other reviews come in later and right. later or what they do is they embargo reviews up until a very small point like the emoji movie i think released its embargo about a day before release and it ended up with a rotten tomato score that i can hold up on two hands at eight percent right
0: And so anytime you have a metric, you're going to find the system will try to game it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think more than anything, it's a question of whether the Rotten Tomatoes organization continues to uh, recognize the way that they're trying to be gamed and, you know, switch up what they're doing in order to account for it.
1: And there's still work that needs to be done here, but there isn't a complete correlation from the numbers that I'm kind of trying to run mm-hmm. to start piecing together maybe a story or an interactive based on this, the correlation between reviews and kind of a measure of how much money the movie is making against its budget, there isn't that high correlation. Mm-hmm. There's very, very small amount.
0: So I think the takeaway here is that, indeed, the nature of criticism is changing. Um, there are new tools for viewers to decide whether or not to go to a film, but whether or not we can categorically uh, account for uh, big swings, and they're not even big swings, in U.S. domestic box office because of them, maybe, maybe not.
1: Let's just say I didn't necessarily agree with the point the studios were making when I saw this story and read it.
0: So another cause for blame is is this one that also has become um, pretty regular here over the last uh, decade or so, which is a perception that streaming, uh, video on demand, and other ways to watch a film at home are, are hurting domestic box office. Um, and so, you know, on one hand, this is where we start getting into sort of some of the, the finer detail of the film industry. Mm-hmm. And the fact that people are still interested in seeing film, that they're renting them or uh, buying them or buying access to subscription plans like Netflix that still allow them to see them. One thing that the Summer Domestic Box Office doesn't tell us is how much people are watching film. Um, It tells us how much people are going to the theater, and so that is more of a key concern for exhibitors, and I just want to throw in some numbers here before we continue this conversation. The movie retailer, or the the exhibitors, the movie theaters, they earn about nine or sixty-seven, sorry, sixty-seven percent of their revenue from admissions. Uh, and then the other big number there is about thirty percent that comes from food and beverage. So maybe you've heard that theaters make all their money off of your popcorn. And well, not all of it, but a big chunk. And so,
1: I mean, that might be the line that makes them profitable.
0: Exactly. So, yes, um, box office being down is probably most uh, concern to the exhibitors. Um, and then if we want to think about the the studios themselves in terms of where their revenue is coming from, at this point, only about 23.5% is the domestic box office. Um, so so in that mind, number
1: that all the brouhaha has been yeah, about. is
0: only a quarter of the studio's income. Um, roughly 40% then comes from foreign distribution, uh, which I read to be both foreign box office and um, all of the other kind of distribution outside of the U.S. that comes after that initial release. Um, and then 37% is, is other distribution. So that so would be
1: home video. video DVD,
0: on uh, selling the license to Netflix or Amazon. Um, and so it's it's very important to keep in mind uh, what these numbers do and do not mean. So the idea that the domestic box office is the key indicator of the health of the studios is, is really uh, is, is wrong-headed.
1: Well, given that it's only, what was the number you gave, 23.5%? Yes. So if 23.5% of your revenue is down... That's still a big chunk of your revenue, but that's not the entire picture, and I think that's a part of what we're trying to get at with this episode here.
0: Right, and I was looking at some other numbers from different financial reports, um, and so this question of, of do we have much evidence that the film industry overall is not in good health? Um, and so one number that I thought was interesting was that last year, U.S. exhibitions, so again, the, the film theaters, had $1.2 billion of profit, um, an annual growth of 2.7% for the period of time from 2012 through 2017. Um, And so even though there really is this story about how much trouble film exhibition is in, I mean, just compare the fact that the annual growth for U.S. exhibition was 2.7%, for the studios, it was two point five, so it's not like they're they're right there together in terms of, of their fate right now. And
1: yet, it was the exhibitors that was were taking the biggest hit as a result of these stories in the summer box office. Their stocks are dropping because investors are getting worried.
0: I mean, I think that's one of the places where. A more sophisticated conversation is important, Mm -hmm. and it's easy to look at these quick numbers and think they mean things. Um, And there is a story here, and it's also not the time to put your head in the sand and think everything is fine and well, Um, but it's also not the time to just sort of point to the fact that the movies were bad, or there's Rotten Tomatoes, or people like to stream movies, because... None of those things are going to change, Um, but what we do need to try to understand better is sort of overall what is going on uh, in the film industry. So, Amanda,
1: you kind of have an emerging thesis, (laughs) you know, your own reasoning for why kind of the box office is down and why kind of this is happening. Do you want to go into a little more about that?
0: Yeah, the podcast has become the space in which I talk about ideas that I am just forming, which may or may not be a good idea. (laughs) Um, But I, over the last week or so, I've been reading a book that I am embarrassed to say that I have not read before now.
1: I haven't read it. (laughs) Um,
0: It is called Shared Pleasures. It's a history of film exhibition written by a media scholar named Douglas Gomery. Uh, It was published in 1992. I decided to read it because of exactly this, a response to this sense in which People often like to think what's happening now because digitization has never happened before. But if you look at throughout film history, film going has changed steadily and regularly. Um, specifically, you know the exhibition experience has changed in really profound ways. Uh, you do know that in the 20s, you, you would go to the theater. There were Ushers who would help you find your seats. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a live show before the film. There was childcare. Whoa. There was air conditioning because both people didn't have air conditioning, and mm-hmm. so... You Wait, know, like, and
1: next thing you're going to tell me is there were balconies, and you could sit in the balcony, and there were organists who played live accompaniment. All
0: those it. things are true, and I'm just imagining that, and my film-going possibilities today are such a sad comparison. I mean,
1: the Michigan Theater is probably the closest you can get to
0: yes, that experience. but they still won't take my children away from me. <laughs> Um, but anyway, and then another key moment of change, which perhaps has more of a parallel to now, is the story about what happened when television emerged, and. Mm-hmm. In many uh, not well-informed histories, uh, the perception is that television is what caused a huge decline in film going. Um, but in fact, Gomery illustrates that it's far more complicated um, and that there were quite a number of years in which film going had already decreased that had nothing before television was a major phenomenon. But in fact, it was it's much more likely attributable to shifts in population as because those were the years in which uh, families were moving out of the city and creating the suburbs, mm-hmm. and due to the way money was being spent at that period of time, because you had a huge boom in home ownership, and so leisure money was changing. Many, many, this was the beginning of the baby boom. Many, many people were having families, so mm-hmm. it's hard to go to the movies when you have babies, um, and you'd have less money to go to the movies. In other words, When we're seeing big shifts in behavior, uh, there's often something more complicated going on. And
1: it's not, so it's not just maybe a simple explanation. There might be other things from outside of just general things that the film industry can control.
0: Right. I've been reading a book by Harvard Business School professor Bharat Anand called The Content Trap, which also takes on all manner of how digitization is changing media businesses. Uh, And he starts from the premise that it's really important to separate the conditions that make a change spread from whatever it is that actually causes the phenomenon in the first place. Often we focus way too much on what caused it and, and really focus on that instead of Well, what made it change? And so in this case, we'd be looking at something like the emergence of Netflix and Amazon and other ways to watch movies at home easily. Um, That's the cause, right? Mm -hmm. But what are the conditions that perhaps have led home viewing to expand so quickly. And I think there we have to talk about the underlying condition of people just being dissatisfied with the film-going experience. And it's, it's not about bigger seats and bigger cup holders, but I actually just, a bigger phenomenon here.
1: Well, let, let's get into that a little bit, because the movie exhibitors do seem to acknowledge that there's something lacking in the multiplex experience. And so what they're doing is they're putting in things like recliners, and bigger screens, and you know, trying to make you you more comfortable as you go down, go to sit down in a movie.
0: I just I, clearly there's investment. Um, I just wonder if that investment is is chasing the wrong um, desires in terms of of why people are are going to the movie or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think one of the big issues about why people go to a movie or not is the price point and one of the things that those bigger chairs with bigger cup holders has led to is an increase in the price of going to a movie
1: yep because anecdotal evidence is obviously the best kind of evidence um (laughs) the movie theater that just opened uh the imagine Mm -hmm. in Celine, Mm -hmm. is probably the nicest movie theater in ann arbor it has recliners But if you go after the matinee time, actually, its matinee tickets are among the cheapest in the area, but its evening tickets are among the most expensive, especially because they don't give little things like student discounts.
0: Well, someone else isn't a student anymore. (laughs) So we'll talk about price more, I think, more in a story about how things are, or how the industry is starting to respond in a second. But I think this question about experience and really digging into it deeper and thinking about really one broad societal shifts in terms of demographics as well as the ways in which um, our expectations of experience are changing. Mm -hmm. And so I think one thing that comes up uh, regularly is the question of phones. What does that mean? Um, It means that for many people, not just young people, we have become so reliant, dependent, uh, addicted. um, Uh,
1: Having that little thing in your pocket that can connect you to the world.
0: And feeling like you can look at it there is a mismatch, um, and so is it a question of whether there should be separate theaters for in which you know, I'm going to look at my phone, you're going to look at your phone. We've all just agreed upon this, but the people who don't want any phones are going to be in a different theater. Maybe that's one way to go. Well, there
1: is a certain point of that. Um, the Alamo Draft House chain out of Texas is famous for a very, very strict no talking, no mm-hmm. phones in the theater. And if you are found to be talking or using your phone, they throw you out. All right.
0: We need to get down and back to the basics of, of what's really happening with film going. And we talked about this a little bit uh, a few podcasts ago when we were mm-hmm. talking about the relationship between what's going on in theater and some of the innovative efforts to, and going back to this, we have the fanciest phrases here, <laughs> nobody knows and get butts in seats, right? <laughs> uh, but how do you get butts in seats mm-hmm. is that, it's it's a certain experience and I, I really wonder if we we scholars or pundits or and the industry and journalists have been focusing way too much on the films and not enough on the notion of going to film or theater for that matter and just the idea that Maybe it's certain people want that experience. And of just
1: going to the movie for the sake of the, going to a movie. The sociality. Instead, instead of right. going to a movie to see it. Like a lot of people are doing this weekend. That movie's <laughs> on track to open to over 100 million domestic. So after all these doing gloom stories, here comes a nice big fat hit.
0: And so I think looking at other things that are changing as a result of of new aspects of culture. So there have been reports about how teenagers are not running out to get driver's licenses like they used to. They're not going to the malls like they used to. And a lot of it has to do with just changing ways in which their social time is organized. But the multiplexes are still very much designed for young people with the expectation that that group that doesn't want that old experience is going to come and then most Hollywood film is still thinking in terms of four quadrants and young people mm-hmm. when, you know, maybe that's not the audience that really cares about film going. Mm-hmm. And so you know, maybe what we're, we're at one of those sort of seismic shifts in the industry mm-hmm. where the behavior around mm-hmm. film going changes and the nature of film itself begins to change as a result.
1: Now, this leads into a bit of an interesting point. In the process of preparing this episode, we reached out to friend of the podcast, Russ Collins, uh, the head of the Michigan Theater. He was on an episode earlier this year that you can go back and listen to on your feeds. But we reached out to him about the same questions that we're addressing now. And his comment was was something I thought was an interesting one, and a bit of a different perspective than what's been out there in kind of these the the stories about the summer box office and what he said was people are deeply concerned about the nature of our society and because this summer's movies reflected quote business as usual thematically which was not what people needed people didn't show up in the numbers expected the movie industry will adjust reflect audience passions and interests and things will go quote back to normal
0: right i think perhaps i mean that's it's an argument that's Hard to develop evidence to support, but mm-hmm. I think perhaps the best evidence we have is really last year's success of This Is Us on television in terms of a television show that really was acknowledged for um, being about real people, their struggles, and that that made people feel in a way mm-hmm. that I think if we do look at that line lineup of, of this summer's box office uh, options, it, you know, it, it, it there really wasn't a sentimental Well uh,
1: not in the ma- not in the mainstream multiplexes, right, sure. but if you look to the art house sector and the mm-hmm. big sick, that's made about fifty million. In the worldwide box office,
0: right, I mean, right, but of course, also, and it did get a fair bit of, of publicity. But mm-hmm. you know, the need for a certain marketing budget to get it to cross over into yeah. a, a broader audience, the way that a network like NBC was able to really serve up yeah. "This Is Us" to a mass audience, is, is another thing. And so, you know, there you go, another mm-hmm. cultural factor. And you know, that's something that's going to switch by next year. Um, perhaps we will no longer need. Um, comfort movies Mm -hmm. next summer, maybe we will. Um, That illustrates, again, how difficult it is for there to be any kind of content response to this, right? Because uh, films, obviously, are made far in advance of their release. But I thought one of the other things we should talk about here as we we pull the episode together uh, is in response to this question of price, there's been some news about the company, MoviePass, Mm -hmm. um, uh, which is again to our many discussions, um, something we should have discussed before now a wow. subscription movie going option yes, something
1: that we inter- maybe introduced the possibility of in that episode <laughs> where we compared it with the theater industry. but let, let's explain first what movie passes is. So movie pass is as Amanda said, a subscription service. It costs you 9.99 a month for one movie showing per day of a 2d non IMAX movie.
0: And part of the reason Pass has been in the news recently is that that is a substantial cut from mm-hmm. what the, the price initially was. And my understanding is that there's also a higher price that can be paid if you want to go to 3D and IMAX. But we need to get some more detail on that. Yes.
1: Um, and what you do is they have some theaters that are available for online ticketing, meaning you just put in in the app, I want to see this movie, and then you go. But they also mail everybody a debit card that then what happens is you put in in the app, I want to see this movie, they load money onto that debit card, and then you go and pay for your movie like that. Um, And in the local Ann Arbor area, movie pass is accepted in four-fifths of the four out of the five (laughs) major theaters in the area. Uh, The Imagine and Celine is the only one that doesn't accept it
0: and so this is an interesting development there's there is the buzz about it is is very much oh this could never work um, this will never work which i i do do have to acknowledge uh, small companies like netflix um, Which faced similar initial reaction, although, of course, often that is also the reaction to things that do fail. (laughs) Um, But I think this is interesting um, in terms of, and and I think it may be viable, and we're just starting to dig into this, but I think it may be viable in terms of the issue of occupancy rates (laughs) and the fact that often when you go to a movie, there are a whole bunch of empty seats. And if what's actually behind MoviePass is a way to sell empty seats, uh, then, then maybe what seems like this impossible financial deal and this giant loss leader may be in some way viable.
1: Well, let's talk about why it's a giant loss leader. The, the impression of MoviePass initially is, and why people are saying this could never work, is because if you pay $10 a month and then you see two movies in that month, mm-hmm. MoviePass has already lost money on you because right. the price of getting a ticket you know even if you're getting an eight dollar ten dollar ticket you know that one ticket is within their range but as soon as you buy that second one right that's where they lose money
0: and so that's the question is really what is the deal between movie pass and the theaters so part of it is that MoviePass has recently lowered its rates. so that mm-hmm. that threshold of just one movie a month does seem pretty low in terms of uh, likelihood. I think initially it was perceived more as kind of like a gym membership, mm-hmm. um, in the way in which uh, people pay regularly large, you know, high monthly fees for gym memberships they don't even use, and so <laughs> the people who go all the time are sort of subsidized by the people who only show up once in a while because mm-hmm. they're all paying the same amount. Um, and so, but the nine ninety nine price point does seem. You know, a tad low. It doesn't seem too difficult to go to a movie a month, but...
1: oh, well, it also doesn't seem too difficult to go to two exactly. movies a month. Um, also, MoviePass has been facing a big fight from the movie theater chain AMC. They're planning, if they haven't already filed the lawsuit, they're planning on suing in order to prevent MoviePass from being used at their theaters. But Amanda, why is um, AMC fighting MoviePass? Pass?
0: I think they're concerned about the the price point and mm-hmm. sort of perceptions of value and what things cost. And And I remember um, talking to executives at the studios a few years ago as Redbox was coming out, and, and the conversation was actually just the same. The concern was that if consumers get in their mind that renting a film only costs $1, um, then their perception of how much they should pay for a movie will be $1. Mm-hmm. And so, so I think this is the same sort of thing that... If consumers start to think that they should be able to see all the movies they want for ten dollars a month that the idea of paying uh, let's say if they were somewhere that didn't accept movie Pass um, mm-hmm. the idea of paying ten dollars to see one movie would be they would find outrageous and then they wouldn't do it
1: and but yet for AMC though they still get the same amount of money on a ticket that movie Pass purchases because movie Pass pays, the full freight of the ticket for the customer. How it works is just you tell MoviePass you want the ticket, and MoviePass then buys that ticket for you.
0: Right. I think those are the the nuts and bolts pieces that we we really need to get into more because Mm -hmm. of the way in which it, it does sound like an impossible business model. It really does. Um
1: but one that is probably very nice to take advantage of while it exists. Exactly. I I just subscribed the week we're recording this, actually, and I'm about to see my first movie on it today.
0: Then we will continue to report uh, both about the the business and experience side of MoviePass. Yes.
1: So let's get into kind of a bit of the broader picture here about how you assess whether the film industry is in trouble. So we have a few points here of kind of different numbers that we can use to look at this.
0: Right, and I, I think in some ways there, there is no good number, and so it's just being aware of what different numbers do and don't tell us. Mm-hmm. One number is attendance, how many people went to see movies. How and, many
1: butts in seats. Yes,
0: uh, total oh, in a year, let's say, um, and then you can compare that number with how many people sat in theaters in other years, and mm-hmm. you can tell whether it's going up or going down.
1: Or even it, I wish uh, attendance numbers were more readily available for specific movies so we can see what movies are drawing more people.
0: Yes, but I think the challenge of that, though, is that in terms of measuring health of the industry, we have to keep in mind, or we have to then evaluate that attendance number next to the fact that the number of screens available has changed and changes constantly. Um, and so, you know, if you have the same, if you have a million people going to see a movie, but and you only have a hundred thousand theaters, it looks really different than if you have two hundred thousand theaters. Mm-hmm. So we have to. Yeah, keep doing different forms of math.
1: And that leads into another way of uh, indicate another thing that might indicate health is you also need to take into account the number of screens right. a movie is showing yes. on, and the number of screens that are in the country. Because if attendance remains the same, but screens boom, and I guess that's what you were saying in just different words.
0: Yeah, it's it's, this, it's both screens and theaters, right? Mm-hmm. In an era of multiplexes. Uh, so then another number is the one we've largely been talking about today, which is box office. And it's the
1: one that's the most widely reported, the most readily accessible, the mo- the kind of right. biggest indicator that's out there of, or and by biggest indicator, the most readily available
0: and indicator. And as we've acknowledged, because box office is only part of both of these businesses and actually a pretty small part of the the production side, It's a number not to consider too strongly. Uh, And then the other thing that we want to keep in mind when we're looking at a box office number is uh, keep in mind that the price of tickets has fluctuated over time.
1: And it's largely gone up.
0: And so that is also going to affect um, the ability to compare box office over time. So, and and I think we've hinted at this as well, sort of the need for different that. Different sectors have different revenue streams, and that needs to be taken into account as so well. So taking
1: into account um, how much comes from foreign, how much comes from domestic. And,
0: right. and so I, mean, I think the takeaway here, and we didn't set out to either confirm nor deny the, the doom and gloom reports that have come out as they annually do. All
1: we did was, or we're trying to say that the, they're existing while not necessarily buying into that.
0: So for a podcast like Media Business Matters, what we wanted to do is really focus on what does matter in terms mm-hmm. of trying to figure out you know, whether the film industry is doing well or, doing not, or not doing so well. Mm-hmm. Um, and as usual, uh, we've come down with the fact that it's complicated. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and on that note, let's move on to the last <laughs> segment of each and every show what we're watching this week. Amanda, what are you watching?
0: We burned through the most recent season of Game of Thrones in a magical, Uh, I think it was five days. I think we did two episodes, or yeah, there were a couple nights we didn't watch, but I think we did two episodes a night. mm -hmm. Gotta say, I highly recommend that way of viewing. I knew big things happened. I somehow managed to avoid overall spoilers. That's Um, good. But it was, I thought it was a really solid season.
1: You know, the more I talk to fans of the show, the more I realize how many holes can be poked into that season, like the intense Intelligence of a plan to go north of the wall to steal a White Walker, and how that's they had they kind of use that to funnel in a ice Dragon.
0: Yeah, you you must suspend you must suspend all kinds of things, uh, <laughs> no matter what you're watching. But no, I thought what I appreciated most, and it probably has something to do with the way that we watched it as well, is the pacing. Um, mm-hmm. in, in Game of Thrones seasons past, I have been bored. I've wondered, why am I watching this? And um, often it has to do with there being so many different characters and so many different stories. And the degree to which in this season um, more characters were coming together, there was sort of less of those sort of like you know, random character off in this land, um, just sort of tolerating the storyline. So I, th- I thought that aspect, the construction of it um, particularly, um, struck me as stronger than in the past. Alex, what have you been watching? I've got
1: two things I want to mention this week. The first is I'm starting to catch up on AMC's Halt and Catch Fire, the show starring Lee Pace about the emergence of the computer industry. The first season takes place in the early 80s. And one of the things I really appreciated about that first season was watching a show grow and watching a show kind of blossom. It's really a very nice feeling when you actually watch a show and realize the moment... Where it turned and just realized what it could be, and then really bloomed as a result, as happened at the end of the first season of *Halt and Catch Fire*.
0: No, I think it is probably one of the more underpraised solid mm-hmm. hits. I'd, I would yeah. only take issue with your uh, description of it as uh, starring Lee Pace because okay. I think it's yep. really uh, a multi-character uh, led show, and that's true. What is particularly impressive—I um, haven't caught the start of the new season yet, but last season. Um, Well, 2 and 3 both really centered on two women in an industry which you don't often find many women. No, computer Um,
1: industry is still today very heavily male-dominated.
0: And the way in which it is both a delightful nostalgia trip for someone at my age um, and to have the stories being told about those two characters as Mm -hmm. they were. Um, It is... uh, There's something for viewers on many levels. There
1: are, and I can't wait to move forward. And I also want to shout out a new podcast. I don't think I've talked about a podcast yet on this show. I want to mention Sam Sanders' It's Been a Minute over on NPR.
0: Okay.
1: Um, It's a show, he releases two episodes a week. Every Tuesday, he does a deep dive into something. Mm -hmm. So he's either talked to a performer or an actor or just done a dive into a topic Mm -hmm. like... His episode, Post-Charlottesville, where he talked to white people about how white people can and should respond to this, Mm -hmm. was fascinating. And every Friday, he does an episode where he brings in just two people from radio, podcasts, journalists, NPR, Mm -hmm. and he brings them in and talks about, you know, the week's news and pop culture and politics and all kinds of fun things. And I think his voice is really strong. I think his voice is a really interesting one, and I think his new show is probably one of the more enjoyable listens on my morning and evening commute.
0: As long as it it doesn't begin to compete with your Media Business Matters listening.
1: Oh, no, of course not. (laughs) Room
0: for all the podcasts.
1: (laughs) And that's it for this week's edition of Media Business Matters. If you want to learn more about Media Business Matters and listen to a complete archive of our show, please go to Amandalots.com. If you want new episodes in your in your podcast feed as soon as they're released, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and on the Google Play Store. And please, if you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and you listen to us there, leave us a little review and rate our show. It, it helps new people find us. Amanda, where can your, our fine listeners find you on Twitter?
0: At Dr. TV Lots. that's D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z, And they can reach the show's viewer mailbag, listener mailbag, I knew I had one of the words wrong, at drtvlots at gmail.com. We haven't done a mailbag show in a while, and I think it's about time.
1: Oh, absolutely. And you can find me on Twitter at Alex Entner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks.